Gracious Father, we come tonight again to study your word and have it wash over us. And as we go over this most important passage or chapter in all the Bible, not the most important, but certainly one of, help us look at it with fresh eyes, Lord. Let us see details that maybe we've missed in the past. Let us see things, well, that will bring enlightenment to our understanding of who you are and what you've done and the impact that your Spirit coming to fill us really has, well, on earth, in the church, and in each one of us. And speak to us, Lord. Help us comprehend this almost incomprehensible thing that you dwell in us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in chapter 2 of Acts. Just a couple of things. First, if, if you are here tonight for the first time, in other words, you weren't here last week, uh, you, that means you're not in a discussion group. When I'm done talking and I in, dismiss the discussion groups, I'm going to invite you to come up and, and please come forward and we'll um, get you in a discussion group. Just please don't just go off to a discussion group. That gets um, things really unbalanced and, uh, and stuff. So uh, just please come forward. Okay? So we're in chapter 2 of Acts. Obviously a very well-known chapter. A uh, chapter that um, is talked about often, uh, but we're going to try and slow down a little and just look at this in, in some detail. So, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Paphelia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cretans. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and uh, Arabs, Arabians. We hear from them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Well, it starts off with this, with this saying, in the day of Pentecost. Sometimes as Christians we think Pentecost started when the Holy Spirit came. But Pentecost has been a, a Jewish uh, festival or holiday for quite a while. Uh, it's, it's often called the Festival of Weeks. 
It's a celebration of the harvest. Actually, it's the barley harvest, to be exact. And it's about this time when the first uh, harvest comes in from the barley fields. And it's observed 50 days, hence the Pentecost, 50 days after the Sunday following Passover. So you kind of get where we're at. So we, Jesus is um, crucified right at Pentecost. Little debate whether it's that night or the next day. And then that Sunday he's raised. So 50 days after that Sunday is when Pentecost would fall. Now he's had 40 days of being on earth making appearances. So then he ascends. So we're 10 days after his ascension, okay? So 50 total, 40 of it, Jesus has been appearing to his followers, the apostles and such. He ascends, and then 10 days later comes uh, Pentecost. Now, there are a couple of different things about Pentecost that are of interest. One, people will make, uh, Jews will make a pilgrimage for Pentecost, or they'll make a pilgrimage sometimes for Passover and spend the 50 days and stay for Pentecost. So Passover, it's not uncommon for, they estimate as many a time of Jesus, as many as a million people will have come to Jerusalem for the observance of Passover. Some of them might stay for Pentecost, okay? So Jewish holiday. Something that also came up, and, and there's much debate right now as to whether it would have influenced this or not. There developed in, in Judaism this belief by marking on the calendar that Pentecost is also when Moses went up the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the law. Okay? The tablets, the Ten Commandments. You all saw the movie, right? Wow. I, okay, right. There is somebody that saw the movie, right? I'm not the only person that's seen that movie. They always show it on Easter. Isn't that interesting? You're showing the Ten Commandments on Easter. Think about that for a nanosecond. Um, so what it develops is this idea that, that the Jews are celebrating, potentially. We know it happens after. There's a question of how far does it back up and would have been you know, where the Jews been thinking this way at this time. Some people uh, think they've proved that. Some are so questionable. Is this then symbolic of the new law coming down through the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit, continuation of the teachings of Jesus Christ, is this, this new law, and Jesus Christ is what? The new Moses, because Moses says what? A prophet like me will come in the future. Now, we don't want to get too far with this because, quite frankly, we do not know whether the Jewish thought at this time had made those connections. We know it does later, very shortly after this, but was it at this time? But it's an interesting thing if, in fact, that is what's going on, that, that Jesus, who we know is the new law and is the new Jerusalem, or new Jerusalem, new Israel, but that the Holy Spirit comes at this time when it's being remembered of the giving of the law through Moses. Okay, so Pentecost, they were all together in one place. They being what? The 120, okay, in one place. Maybe still the upper room. We're not given 
exactly where they're at. It might be that upper room that we heard referred to last, last uh, chapter. But clearly they're, they're still together. They're waiting for what? The power from above, the Holy Spirit. So they're together. And suddenly there came from heaven, okay? Heaven, um, heaven also is a word for sky, same, same Greek word, but comes down from heaven. So it's a spiritual event. Came down from heaven, a sound like. And it's always important, like. We can get really caught up in a mighty rushing wind, like a wind came through this house. No, it's a sound like wind. And not to get too geeky on you here, but in Greek, the word for wind is the same word for the Holy Spirit, or for spirit, not Holy Spirit, but spirit, need the adjective to do that. And, and so the normal word that you'd use for spirit, you'd also use for wind. That is not the word used here. That should catch our attention. The normal word he would have used for wind, he doesn't, so that there's no confusion, that this is a sound, okay? This is not a, 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 you know, a, a wind that's coming through that reminds us of. This is a sound that catches our attention. All these things, the, the sound, the little flame, Bob Ritter told me that one time John used a Bic lighter over his head. I said, I don't have enough up there to really give that space to do that. And the speaking are all signs, okay? They in of themselves are not accomplishing anything other than to get the attention of someone, okay? In this case, the wind, the ru- sound like rushing wind that filled the entire house, and then divided tongues of fire appeared, appeared to them and rusted each other. This is all to get their attention. This is like, yoo-hoo, come on, pay attention. Something's going to happen here. And this is how they kind of go, oh, what, what is going on? You know, I, I, we'd like to say, hey, if the Holy Spirit showed up, I, I don't need all this special effects. I think I'd get really... You know, like, wow. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. But God makes a clear appearance by these two things. Now, much has been done. I mean, all kinds of symbols. You know, you give a pastor some symbolism like this, and, and they'll run with it forever and make sermons about all kinds of stuff that really don't have a whole lot to do with the text. Yes, we have that ability. We don't want to get hung up on this. Clearly, fire is connected to God, burning bush, other examples, the purifying aspect of it. But what, what we have here is getting the attention that something spiritual from heaven is coming, and it sounds like what we would think the Holy, that a spirit would sound like, and we see fire that would be similar to what we would think would be associated with God, Okay. So that's to get their attention. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So really, they're sitting around, sound, sight, you know, they can't see their own, but hey, wait a minute, you got fire on top of your head. I don't know what's going on here. This is really weird. And then all of a sudden, they start speaking languages that they don't know. They're earthly languages now. They're just speaking in languages they don't, they don't know. So, 
the sense is, and we don't get exact details, the sense is there's this clamor, okay? There's all these, I mean, like they're speaking. It's not like they're holding a conversation. It's literally just coming out of them. And so while they're doing that, five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So, so kind of hold on to this noise coming out of this house, okay, of all these people talking in different languages. 13 is what's recorded here, but we don't actually know how many languages. I mean, that's just 13 areas. It could be more going on. Then we're told about the people that are going to hear this. Now, there, was, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven would be Basically, the Roman Empire. That's the known world, okay? They didn't know about China. They didn't know about North America. They didn't know about South America. They didn't know about it. They knew the, essentially the Roman world, okay? And at this sound, all this talking, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So again, this language is not trying to communicate anything, Okay? This is, sometimes people get confused. They, they think, oh, God is speaking to these people in their own language, and that's what this is all about. No, because as we're going to see in a minute, that isn't the case. It's a sign. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Something's going on here. I have no idea. I've never seen anything like this. And by their accents, okay, I... You think of where you think an accent. I mean, southeast, uh, Texas, um, you know, Minnesota, if you're not from here. People say we have accents. There's no way. We do not. They have accents. So they hear these people speaking, and they go, I know they're not native speakers. In fact, not only do I know they're not native speakers, I know they can't even speak this language because they're from, when? Someplace that isn't deemed extremely educated. I maybe used the state of the nation at lunch, but I, I won't use any states because we're all from different states and they're all great states. So, so they're hearing this and this is all to draw their attention. To say, just like the, the, the fire and the wind was to draw the apostles' attention, this is to draw these thousands of people that are in the area attention and so they 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 go over there to check out what's going on all right and so they go over there and they're bewildered and they say why what are they doing they're amazed and astonished saying aren't all these people speaking um galilean i mean i i just want to use some term but i can't without diminishing the great quality of some place um, somewhere, they would be someplace that you wouldn't think they'd be doing this. That's what shocks them. How is it that we hear each of us in their own native language? And they list them all. And not all of them, but they list the areas. These are, these are peoples and areas, one city, and then uh, people groups. So how, how is it that we're hearing this? And, and there's a term in there both Jews and proselytes, okay? We need to just take a second, a little definition tonight, because we're going to be seeing these words again. 
Let's talk about the three main players in this world that we're going to be talking about throughout Acts. First is the Jew. Jew is born into an ethnic Jewish family and is practicing, okay? You could be born Jew and still having, you're not observant, you're not keeping the law, you're not. So you might say you're a Jew, but you'd be deemed not a Jew, okay? So that's, that's the Jew, the proselyte is born Gentile, becomes a Jew, including circumcision, okay? And that's the critical part. Shockingly, most proselytes are females, okay? God-fearers are born Gentile, associated with Judaism, basically are a lot like the proselytes, but they don't get circumcised, Okay? The argument that is growing quite strong in the uh, scholarly world when it comes to Acts is that most of the people that come out of the synagogues and become believers are God-fearers. That they aren't Jews, so these aren't Jews converting. They're Gentiles. But when Paul goes to the synagogue and some from the synagogue come, that they're God-fearers. And God-fearers play a huge role in how the church grows. So think of it. You're God-fearer. You're drawn to Judaism. Maybe it's the moral law. Maybe it's the, the sense of community. Maybe it's you've been searching for a, a you know, monotheistic religion. There aren't any. This is the only monotheistic religion of the time. So you're looking for all that. But that circumcision thing just... So, okay, here comes Christianity. We got all that. And oh, by the way, you don't have to be circumcised. It's a winner. Where do I sign up? And so literally that's, a bit, so we're going to hear God-fears throughout Acts. Uh, we're going to hear all three of these, but God-fears is going to be the one that's going to catch our attention a little bit. So, so it's both Jews and, and proselytes are there. And, and they're, they're amazed, saying, you know, what does this mean? This, there's a, throughout this chapter, there's this section of they're confused, bewildered, perplexed, but interested. And they say, okay, what does this mean? And we're going to hear in a little bit, what do we have to do? And that's always the segue. Every section ends with that. So they go, what do we have to do? Now, there's some that are the naysayers. Oh, they're just drunk. New wine, meaning wine that hasn't been fully fermented. It's cheap stuff. And so there's some of those, but that's not what we're focused on. It says, what does this mean? I want to know. And Peter stands up amongst the 11. That's important. This isn't a Peter show. This is about the apostles. Peter stands up, lifts up his voice, and addresses them in one language. Okay. This is how we know it's a sign. He's going to talk in one language. He's not going to talk in 13 languages or more. So clearly, he's either speaking in Arabic or, or in Greek. You can argue both. Aramaic is where most people argue for. The problem is it isn't that well-known Western-wise. It's more Greek that way. But he spoke in one of those two languages that this whole crowd would know. So the speaking in tongues was not about communication. It was about a sign. It was about getting their attention. It was about them going, hey, 
what's going on? I want to know more. And it's effective. And that sets Peter up. Now, this is, this is Peter, right? Peter is not going to get it right. He's going to mess it up. He's going to get about a third of the way. This is, say, something really stupid. We know that. It's Peter. Oh, wait. This is not Peter talking. This is clearly the Holy Spirit talking. He's had, he's had the Holy Spirit for, I don't know, 15 minutes, half an hour maybe, 45 minutes. This is not the transformed Peter who has this all figured out and has thought about it and is now speaking out of his own knowledge. This is all the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. And he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to your words. For these people are not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. There's no way. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Where does he go right away? Who are they? They're Jews. He goes, this is literally what the prophet, one of the minor prophets, one of the 12, doesn't make them less, just means they write less. The 12. This is what Joel is talking about. This is what God was talking about through Joel. It's happening right here in front of you. There's millions of Jews in the world, but you, three, four, five thousand, however there are at this time, you five thousand are seeing it, hearing it, and are the ones. Our lucky day. Now, before we get into what Joel, what Joel prophesied, we have a little thing here. There's a bit of a debate. And you may have heard this taught both ways, and that's because thus the debate. It says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem... So are these people, people that are native to these other places who are now currently living in Jerusalem or Judea? Judea being the kind of providence in, in Jerusalem, the city. And so they, they're there because that's where they live. That's what people argue from this passage. Or, as it was earlier, are they people that have made a pilgrimage and are resident right now in that they're, you know, staying there, they're dwelling there for a short period of time, and they actually live somewhere else. We don't need to answer that very um, succinctly. I mean, we don't have to come up with this. But what's important is that they are connected to someplace else. We're going to say it now, we're going to say it again at the end. Remember back in Acts 1. Wow, that was so long ago. Oh, that was last week, wasn't it? This is my best stuff. I mean, I think of these jokes all day long. I mean, really. Steve's going, you got to be kidding me, Tom. This can't even be close to your best stuff or I just give it up. All right, so in Acts 1.8, the great commission over Acts is what? You apostles are going to witness. You're going to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, witnessing about me, Jesus. And we're reading that and going, you got to be kidding me. How are these people, how are these 12 who don't speak many languages, who aren't great travelers, who don't seem to even get it, 
going to go out and spread this to the ends of the Roman Empire, to the ends of the known earth. And that's what's going through our head through one. So we come out of chapter one going, man, maybe by the time we get to 28, but there is no way they can pull this off. And just a few lines later, there they are, standing beside Peter, saying words they couldn't have imagined just an hour earlier, talking to people who represent places that go to the ends of the earth, people who, when they hear this, are going to respond and are going to be the catalyst for many churches being started all over the Roman Empire. And all this through the apostles witnessing without having to even leave Jerusalem. This is God's show. This isn't the apostles. This is God's show. The Holy Spirit shows up, draws the world to him, speaks through Peter, and converts 3,000. And the apostles don't even really know what happened. All right, let's look at the prophecy of Joel. And in the last days it shall be God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you think about that? We are in the last days. Now, last days is always a function of what's your perspective. When they thought they were in the last days 2,000 years ago, they thought we wouldn't even exist because the last days would have ended about, oh, I don't know, 1,950 years ago. So last days is a period of time, not a point on a chronological map. Okay? So the last days are initiated what? By the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ initiates the kingdom of God coming to earth. That doesn't mean that God wasn't active in earth. It wasn't that he didn't have people of earth, but the kingdom of God coming to earth is a function of what? Jesus Christ coming. And then the people of God, the the fulfillment of the promise is when the Holy Spirit comes, where we're at right now, where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with and in the people. This is unimaginable to the Jew, to the Israelite. We've said this many times. Why is it unimaginable? Because they can't be with God because they will die because of their sin. That's why there's the veil across the temple of the Holy of Holies to keep you from going in because if you go in, in the presence of God, you're going to what? Poof, dead. That's why the high priest has a rope tied across him on the around him in the one day a year when he goes in to make atonement. So when he dies, if he isn't pure enough to go in and do that, they can drag his body out with no one else having to go in and get him. Think about that for a second. Okay. The high priest, once a year, goes into the Holy of Holy, the presence of God, and they tie a rope around his waist 
that if he isn't pure enough, he will die so they can get his body out. That same God is going to come live in your house. That same God is going to dwell with you every minute of every day. That would have freaked out the Jews. So the beginning of the, the, the last days is coming to Jesus. What's the end of the last days? The return of Jesus. The day of judgment. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. We're going to have a lot of overarching statements, one of which is all flesh. It's going to get defined very quickly. In fact, some of these are going to be defined in the very next chapter. So we're just going over. So when you see all flesh, you mean, oh, all humanity is going to have the Holy Spirit. It's going to get defined. So, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. They're going to testify. They're going to preach. That's what prophesy means. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even your male servants and female servants of those days will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. Servants, slaves. Think slave, because that's really what the word is. Your slaves will even. It's a powerful day. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. We saw that with Jesus. All this is fulfilled with Jesus. Blood, fire, or blood and fire, the vapor of smoke. We saw some of that um, when Jesus was crucified. The sun will turn to darkness. We saw that when he was crucified. The moon to blood could have been in effect. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So much of this is fulfilled through Jesus. Some argument as to whether all of it was fulfilled. And all this before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. I love the way the day of the Lord, that's the day of judgment, is talked about in the Bible. It's talked about as the horrible day to be feared and to dread. And it's talked about as this great and glorious, magnificent day. And the Bible talks about it both ways regularly. Why? Kind of depends on where you're at with God. For some people, it's going to be a great, glorious day. For most of the earth, it's going to be the worst day of their life. So when we see this, we have to think of it as it's seen through the believer's eyes. And it shall come, pa- come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from that day of the Lord, that judgment, that powerful day. Then he goes on. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, attested meaning, you know, vouched for by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So this is how God said this is the Messiah. Signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, okay? You know this for a fact. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, okay? All this was God's plan 
He said, getting ready to give him the, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified. Wait a minute. I was home that day. I wasn't even out. I wasn't doing anything. I was in Cappadocia. I wasn't even here. It was 50 days ago. I just got into town two days ago. What do you have to do for someone to believe they need a Savior? You need to convince them that what? They need a Savior. Otherwise, you can talk to them all day long about a Savior. And if I don't, you know, I've used that analogy many times. If you come up to me and tell me that you have a, uh, oh, I don't know, a motorcycle for me, and I don't ride motorcycles, it's not going to mean anything. Oh, great, that's super. I, no thanks. I come up and tell you about a Savior, and I don't feel I need a Savior. I go, you know, and you, most of us have, oh, that's, that's great. That's great. You keep your little Savior to yourself because I don't need one. She's got to convict the Jew of what? That they need a Savior. But you tell a Jew you're a sinner, what do they say? Yeah, news, big deal. Yes, I am a sinner. Luckily, God provided the sacrificial system to take care of my sins. And I live under that system. And I'm very compliant. You know, I take my, my goat one, ooh, and I have to, that's a big one. But I take and get a bird. I get, take some grain. I make all my offerings. Day of Atonement, I'm right there. Passover, I brought my lamb. I have my sins taken care of by the system that God provided through the Mosaic Law. You can't touch me. How can you touch me? Yeah, tell me I'm a sinner. I don't care. I got this system under inside of my thing. Now, later on, we're going to see where Paul challenges that system in, with the coming of Jesus Christ. But right now, we're not there. So Peter doesn't say what? You're a sinner. He says, you've done what? You've killed the Messiah, the anointed one. I don't know. You look that up in the law. Is that page 47 where it says, what sacrifice takes care of killing the Messiah? Yeah, there isn't one. You got a system. The system doesn't take care of this one. The shocking thing for me is I, I would think they'd go, yeah, 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 you and your Messiah. But that isn't what happened. He goes on and talks about David using the Psalms and, and saying how David says, I saw the Lord always before me, meaning this is Jesus talking. His right hand that I may not be shaken, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will not dwell, will also dwell in hope. In other words, Jesus Christ was not decaying, hopeless, abandoned to Hades. And his point is what? As he says, I know David's body was buried and essentially decayed. So David cannot be talking about in 25 through 28 about himself. He's clearly talking about someone else and I'm here to tell you that someone else is Jesus. That's what he says in, in 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence 
about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being there for a prophet, he's talking about that which is someone else. And he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and that he was not abandoned to Hades. To Hades. And what we've all witnessed, we know this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, it's 33, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's from Jesus. Now this brings us to that question. Why did Jesus have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come? We're told in John 16, starting in verse uh, 4, going on through um, verse 11, Jesus talking to the disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. This is his long instruction in John. But now I am going to him who sent me, the Father, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I've said, I'm leaving. You're sad. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning son, because they did not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. So why did Jesus Christ have to ascend for the Holy Spirit to be sent? Well, Jesus Christ was resurrected, but he did not, has not at that point, taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. He has not fully come to reign over his kingdom. So when he ascends, he ascends to the Father. He ascends to heaven, the spiritual realm. He sits at the right hand. He's fully seated as King, Lord of the kingdom of God. And from that position of power and might, he now sends the Holy Spirit to eventually, to essentially bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. So he has to go to send. All under the direction of the Father. So this exalted Jesus who is sitting at the right hand has received from the Holy Spirit, the prom- received from the Father, promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured this out on you. Jesus Christ, the one you crucified, has poured out the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, out on the people that are in front of you, and that which you've witnessed is directly from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Mean that guy we killed is doing all this? You got it. You've picked it up. 
Yes, this thing that you can't explain, that you said you've never seen before, this thing that is blowing your mind is all being done by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is the Jesus you killed. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Convicted. Were really scared. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Remember when they heard all those voices and they say, What's going on? We got to know. Now they've just realized, they've just been convicted, they've been cut to the heart. They go, Are you kidding me? All this is we're watching, this amazing, obvious act of God that's happening in front of us, all is being done by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we killed him? Yeah, yeah, there's no sacrifice for that. What do we And he says, this powerful, very short sentence, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have just did the unthinkable. You have killed God. You have come to the understanding of what you've done. And here's this weird Galilean who you don't think much of because he's a Galilean who a little bit ago was speaking in some language he clearly didn't understand along with all these other people. Has just opened your eyes to the truth of the just desperate situation you are in. And, and, and you're thinking... Okay, there's got to be some complex formula. There's got to be something. Do I have to go find like 37, you know, bowls and I have to sacrifice? What do I got to do? This is just, I got to find a way out of this. He says, repent and be baptized. Excuse me? There's got to be more to it than that. You, you're telling me if I repent that God's going to forgive me for killing the Messiah? Yeah. In fact, the Messiah died so that you can be forgiven for killing him. The things that we've seen so many times, read so many times, we take for granted. But if you dwell on that, that Jesus died so his killers can be forgiven for killing him. 
You repent. You turn. It isn't, it isn't you say, I'm sorry. I feel bad about it. You acknowledge that it's wrong, that it's a sin, it's an affront to God, and you turn from it. That turning process is not a quick 180 smooth, I'm all done with that. It's a constant process called sanctification. <laughs> But our goal is to continue to realign ourselves to Jesus Christ. It should be our goal every day, as it is their goal. And to be baptized. It's an interesting thing. The, the Bible doesn't really tell us we have to be baptized to be saved. You'll just never find a saved person in the Bible that hasn't been baptized. It's, it's like somebody brought up earlier today. It's kind of like James. We're not saved by works or what we do. But I've never known anyone that truly believed that didn't have works or the fruit of their belief in their lives. Again, baptism, we believe, is professing your faith, and being immersed in water and being raised up. Again, the Bible does not know a believer who does not become baptized. And this promise, this gift, this gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit is not just for you, It's for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort, exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, received his word. And that's what makes me think there are many more there. We're baptized and we're added that day about 3,000. See, it's crazy how, how a group of people can hear the exact same words and some receive it and some reject it. But that's the way it's been and that's the, what the Bible says it's always going to be on this side of the coming return of Jesus. It's like Paul talks about in Romans. When he spends all those two and a half chapters talking about why we need a Savior. Seemingly beating us down all the time. Beating us down to simply tell us that yes. You have sinned against God and yet God has provided the way to salvation. All right, let's go in our discussion groups. If you have